0: channel's
1: a turkey jam, Captain. It's a little loud, which means our stealthy Klingon pals can't hear what's coming next. Engage impulse in a barrel roll loop. Overload the warp
0: core, 130%.
1: The plasma intercooler's gone. The engines are overheating. Frankly, I fail to see any point at all. Gotta keep them on their toes, Jenny man. I've blown up so many times. I see now, the only way out is chaos. Transfer complete.
0: and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and
1: joining me on the animated bridge. This is Tyler Orton rocking out to ACDC
0: was that ACDC? It sounded like ACDC, but it felt like also a generic version.
1: I think it was like one of those sound-alike bands where cuz I kept waiting for like Angus to start like screaming Thunderstruck and um it, I I don't think it ever happened, did it?
0: No, and like the music got more generic as it kept going and I was like, "Wait, maybe this is just some like library music they have that's free. I don't know what this is."
1: Well, I think there's ways of them getting around these licensing, because I was thinking like, uh, okay, so we're, of course, talking about the uh, Star Trek Prodigy episode Kobayashi. We'll be doing a review of that, as well as the preceding three episodes uh, just in the last few weeks, which include Time Amok, and right before that, it was First Contact, and uh, before we get into those recaps, and I'll pick up my thought there with ACDC, um... At the end of the episode, the very end, we'll be talking about the latest on Boba Fett's The Gathering Storm. I think that's chapter four, as they call it, or as we call it, the book cam of Borba Fett. We're really stretching it with the puns based on our names. Um, There's some Star Trek news with premiere dates and confirmations of new seasons coming up with uh, lots of other shows. And then we also have some uh, viewer or some listener mail that we've been meaning to get to for a while. It's just we've kind of been packed with other content, so uh, we'll be happy to address this. uh, It's First Contact related, and I don't mean the episode uh, with regards to Prodigy, but the film itself. That's right. That's right. We meant to do it last week,
0: but last week's episode, as I think the listeners realized, was quite long already, so we're going to put it on this one.
1: Yes, sirree. But uh, Cam, yeah, picking up uh, with uh, ACDC on Kobayashi, you've got the uh, Enterprise D animated bridge. You've got this sound-alike band. And I was thinking in my head, like, if it's actually an AC/DC song, that is probably, like, the uh, most licensing or highest cost in licensing a song that we've had since... Remember when, like, I think it was Stamets was, like, Mumbling out words from uh, Major Tom, uh, the uh, the David Bowie song. I like. How much money do you have to pay the artist just for like mumbling the words, the lyrics out, versus actually like playing like a recording of it? Like, I, I, there's got to be a difference, right?
0: I would have to imagine there is a difference. I was wondering too. Um, they had the wyclef John song in season one, Discovery, the uh, Staying Alive uh, remix uh, song. And I'm wondering, like, how does that work in terms of paying Wyclef Jean versus the Bee Gees?
1: Oh, that's very curious. I, I, it's a very messy situation with, like, um a lot of these, like, remixes. And there's a lot of times where, like, the uh, artists, the new artists will ask if they can sample something from, you know, one of those artists from the 60s or 70s. And the original artist will say no. And there's been court cases where the new artist is like eh whatever i'm going to sample it anyway and <laughs> like they don't care so um yeah it's a bit of a tricky situation there i i never really thought about that um who gets what in terms of like uh dollars for uh, licensing a remix yeah cuz
0: i would have to imagine like the music is the bee gees so they would have to get
1: something they would have to get a significant chunk of it i would think Cam, uh, do you remember that, uh, uh, that uh, New Year's Eve party I was hosting at my place a, a couple years back? And I, I did include that on the playlist. And I think you were the only one at the party that uh, nodded at me in uh, recognition of what I was trying to do there. You mean the only person there that was watching Star Trek Discovery? <laughs> very correct. <laughs> yes, very correct. So, we did not invite any of our uh, usual go-to guests that year for uh, New Year's 2018. They just didn't invite us to their party. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so, Cam, let's jump into Kobayashi. Look, let's not bury the lead here. We've got uh, four or five fantastic characters return. And the question is, is this just kind of cynical fan service? Or is it actually kind of doing something interesting within Star Trek canon when you have Dahl... learning how to be a captain on the holodeck of the USS Protostar. You've got Uhura at comms. You've got Odo at security, although he's sitting at navigation. Then you've got, uh, you're, uh, flanked by one Spock and one Dr. Crusher in the captain's chairs on the Enterprise D of all things. And then finally, uh, Scotty from the movie era, uh, shows up as well. Like, I, 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 I was absolutely delighted to see this. And I didn't walk away thinking like, "Oh, this is just cynical fan service." Because for me, I'm realizing more and more as we go through Star Trek: Prodigies, this is meant to be an introduction to the franchise for kids, and so that's why you're learning about things like holodecks or transporters or the Prime Directive in a very simple way. And uh, and like I uh, we've said in past week, uh, these simple things are probably best for you and me, who who are very simple people as well. Well, obviously, but I think
0: what I really enjoyed was, as you said, like. In terms of selling kids on what Star Trek is, I think an episode like this and using these characters like this is really a great way to do it. Because it's fun, it's playful, young kids can get into it. Then later on down the road when they, you know, watch TOS or, you know, DS9 or TNG, it's like these characters are going to pop for them. And, you know, hopefully it does kind of bridge that gap of, like, children's entertainment into more adult storytelling. So I think it works on that level. But it was also just, like, a lot of fun because... You will never, in any, I mean, obviously several of the actors have passed away, you know, at least a couple of them who are taking part in this episode. But, like, just the idea of having a scene where you have Crusher, Spock, Uhura, and
1: Odo, like, on a bridge, that's incredible. You'll never get that anywhere else. I think it's just kind of animation has solved part of that legacy character issue as the actors either, either pass away or they get older. And unless you want a Grand Moff Tarkin it, a la you know, Rogue One, the, the, the Star Wars film, I, I think this is a much better way. It's just like work within kind of the animated series. Like, you know, we could see this going forward with uh, Lower Decks. I'm kind of... It, it, I I was delighted that they're like splicing audio clips from like fifty five years ago. You know, just even like hearing kind of how audio sounded different. I, I I didn't like roll my eyes. I was like, you know, that's cool. You know, like I I dig that, and, and even just some of the uh, the hilarious Odo deliveries, where he's just like, um, uh, you can't order me. Uh, I am resigning my commission instead (laughs) it's just like stuff that he would have said in a completely different context like this episode just absolutely delighted me all the way through um it's probably maybe my favorite episode of star trek prodigy yet and look if i'm just a sucker for fan service maybe that's the case but uh, i i think this worked within what you're trying to teach doll and what you're trying to teach kids about getting into the star trek franchise so this one totally worked for me yeah
0: and The one thing was there was, I thought, with some of the audio mixing of these classic clips, there was a couple Spock ones where I was like, eh? (laughs) Like, what was that? (laughs) But then they would, like, seg from, like, a clip from, you know, some random aside from a TOS episode that was a little murky to a clip from one of the movies that's very clear. (laughs) And you're like... Okay, I can wrap my head around this because it's a holographic you know recreation, so I'm willing to uh, look past the uh, audio issues. I think that also helps pave over that a little bit because it's like well, it's a hologram. It's sort of a compilation of what they may have had in their recordings or what the computer may you know be you know re uh, spitting out here. So it works. If this was like, as you said, a Tarkin, it would not have worked
1: yeah what did you think about the visual representations of the respective legacy characters coming back because you have kind of tos era spock and uhura you have you know deep space 9's odo i think he's in his season 4 outfit by that point you've got crusher probably you know season 6 7 of tng versus the uh the season 1 look and of course you got scotty they went with going you know, went with the movie era look of scotty versus the original series era what did you think of those decisions there
0: It really felt like they went with the best decisions possible for animation, where it really felt like you were seeing the icons as we know them in Star Trek. So, uh, you know, like, it didn't put Crusher in, say, her movie uniform or something like that. It's like the, the, the vision of them as I think any fan would think of those characters. And Scotty... As much as I love him on the original series, I think if you ask most people, they think of Scotty from the
1: movies more than they do the show, despite the fact he does far less in the movies. Unfortunately, if they put Crusher in her movie-era uniform, it means that she would not have had any lines in this episode, right?
0: (laughs) She had more lines in this episode than she probably did in uh, some of those Star Trek movies. Combined. (laughs)
1: Like, yeah. <laughs> that's the sad part. Um, well, yeah. What did you think about the choice of going with the Enterprise-D as kind of the the training ship versus some of the other uh, possib- possibilities that exist out there?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting choice because I think a lot of shows would have done um, just the TOS um, bridge. But I think here it makes a lot of sense to play with that iconography because I think... <sighs> I would love to know parents who are introducing their kids to, like, adult Star Trek, you know, I mean, uh, non-animated Star Trek, if they would tend to veer more towards, like, TNG than they would TOS. Like, I wonder if, just because of some of the 60s, um, you know, dated aspects, if they would be less likely to introduce their kids to TOS versus, like, what TNG represents. And also just the age of people who would have been, you know, young watching TNG showing their kids now. It would just work
1: it would make a lot more sense, right? I was thinking it's it's the age thing. Like, I don't yeah. know how many 85-year-old first-time parents there are who uh, grew up <laughs> on uh, the original series, you know, <laughs> versus the uh, 30-somethings, 40-somethings right now that are having kids and uh, introducing their, their children to the franchise for the first time. Yeah, definitely. But also, we are going to
0: have, um, you know, very, like, enterprise classic bridge on strange new worlds we've had it on discovery i wonder if here they were just like look we've already done that a couple
1: times let's do
0: the tng bridge
1: do you think they ever kind of floated the idea you know we, we have to pretend we're in the writer's room but do you think they ever floated any other possibilities you know like do you think the defiant could have been in play do you think i don't know like the the voyager could have been in play as well
0: I think the Voyager is the only one. I don't think they were looking probably at the Defiant or the NX-01.
1: It would have been fun if it was the NX-01, although that would have preceded kind of the the Kobayashi Maru (laughs) simulation at uh, Starfleet Academy. Yeah, no, that's, that's true.
0: Yeah. Were you surprised that they put so many TOS characters on the bridge as opposed to throwing in a Voyager character or an Enterprise character?
1: Well, yeah, you know, that's a very good question. I, you know, I, I think they definitely wanted to have kind of like diverse representation. And I think if you have, like, who else would have been on the bridge? If it was like a Voyager character, you can't have Chakotay. You already have had Tom Paris and Lower Decks. I think that just leaves you with either Tuvok or Kim at that point. Um, so there's the possibilities there.
0: You could have done B'Elanna Torres when
1: he asked for the new engineer. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So it's kind of like three versus two, right? So that's kind of... Well, and you know what? We already have Janeway in every single episode. So I think that's kind of their way of uh, giving the nod to uh, the Voyager era. Is it kind of sad that there's zero NXO1 representation in this episode?
0: Sad, but not surprising at all.
1: Do you think um, you could have gotten Anthony Montgomery to come back and and, uh, revive uh, (laughs) Mayweather for this?
0: I do. And he would have had more dialogue in this episode than he probably did on Enterprise. Um, I agree. It's interesting. We've had some Enterprise shoutouts on Discovery lately. I'm just waiting to see when we get an Enterprise actor coming back in some way. It seems like they're happy to pay homage without quite trotting out some of those actors.
1: I mean, the only Enterprise actor that we've had back is, one, Jeffrey Combs, but, you know, he he goes back to Deep Space Nine as well, so yeah. it's it's not really... And, like, he's not playing a character. Like, he's not playing Shran. But I, I think there is a possibility to bring back to Paul, although I, I really doubt Jolene Blaylock is interested in reviving that character. I think the more likely scenario, though, is you bring Jeffrey Combs back to play Shran on Strange New Worlds, because as far as I know, like, there's nothing saying that... And Dorians only have, like, a, you know, 30-year, 40-year lifespan. And if I recall correctly, I might be wrong, but I I think they do have longer lifespans, like, more akin to what Klingons have. And we saw, say, Kor and Koloth come back, um, Kang, after, you know, they would have been aged around 150 years on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I could also see Phlox, actually.
0: I think he would work really well in animation. Mm. And if you're going to have, like, in this episode, you know, a playful concept like the holodeck— he could be really fun. I think John Billingsley
1: would bring something to animation voiceover. That would be a lot of fun as well. And look, his uh, stretchy mouth could stretch all mm-hmm. that much more in animation. So that'd be cool to see.
0: <laughs> um, also, when his face like blows up like a, you know, spiny fish or whatever they're called.
1: Yeah, yeah the blowfish sort of look. I, yeah, uh, I, I would have dug that. Um, A couple little things here. I, I want to ask you. Okay, so my interpretation of the Kobayashi Maru simulation was always like the point wasn't that you do everything you can to save the kobayashi maru and defeat the klingons it's that you're in a no win situation like if you engage the klingons in the neutral zone you start a war and you don't want that but on the other end it you're left to leave the kobayashi maru you know federation citizens uh, leave them to die that's kind of the no-win scenario where whereas as it's presented here, and maybe my interpretation is incorrect, it's just you have to defeat the Klingons to save everybody. Um, how have you interpreted the Kobayashi Maru, which is a little bit obtuse, kind of uh, opaque, I should say, um, but uh, what's been your interpretation over the last you know, decades or so?
0: Well, I think, I mean, as you said up front, it's a no-win because it's a no-win scenario. But I think what they were doing here was a little more of a simplified version of it. Because I think <laughs> explaining to children, like, well, this could set off a war because of the neutral zone and things like I think it just gets a little heavy. Mm-hmm. So they just tried to create a scenario here that kids could understand where every option would lead to destruction. I think that's much easier to communicate. Um, during the
1: simulation, did it bug you that uh, mo- most of the characters were in the wrong positions within the bridge? You know, like we had, um, at one point, Scotty was going back and forth between wharfs tactical console and then to the engineering console at the very back Odo for who is a security (laughs) officer not a tactical officer those are two very different things but detective Odo is at the navigation console like I just like that sort of stuff bugged me but obviously they want kind of like maybe just has to do with like blocking and i don't know if that's even the right term for animation but blocking essentially in live action means like where the characters stand so you can capture them on camera
0: quite possibly i just wonder too if it's just fun just the idea of mixing and matching these characters with different jobs it's just something we've never seen before so i I just found it fun in that regard and i just want to say too the moment where they were all like huddled behind the security console was hilarious (laughs)
1: You can't do that in live action, though. Like, that, that's like that's why I'm having so much fun watching the series is because they're, they're playing within the parameters of this particular format of of uh, media. And it, it's, I don't know, you and I, we've, we've been, like, complaining a lot about Discovery and before that, Picard. And I don't think we're, like, new school haters. I just think we're having so much more fun with two series. I'm talking about Lower Decks and Prodigy, in which the creators seem to just love diving into this universe and all the possibilities that exist within it versus finding out stories about, I don't know, like, let, let's let go to my home planet where there's, you know, space locusts, like, eating trees, you know, like, that sort of stuff. Sorry,
0: sorry, I fell asleep when you mentioned space locusts, I just had a flashback <laughs> to that episode. Yeah.
1: Yes. Was that the nadir of of, like, 32nd century, like, discovery at this point?
0: Yeah, that's the uh, yeah. I think that's the low point. I'm just trying to flash back to the rest of this season, but I think that's probably the worst.
1: I mean, I think we're being more entertained by season four of Discovery at this point. I think we found like uh, season three of Discovery to be pretty boring, but yeah, uh, as entertained as we are, it's just the show's still frustrating us just with their storytelling decisions. That's all. That's all. Anyway, anyways, I digress. I digress. We we want to like elevate what we're enjoying right now, which is Star Trek Prodigy, 100. percent
0: that's right. And one thing I thought this episode did that was really fun and actually reminded me of Lower Decks that only animation can really do was being able to just drop in little gags like the Jane Eyre Hollow novel Return <laughs> made me laugh so hard. The Amok Time shout out, um, bringing back the game for like a little sequence there. Like it's doing it in a way that I think is really funny for Star Trek fans. But like if you're just a kid, it just feels like a really, you know, fun shifted environment for a moment or
1: two. Yeah, so a, a few little plot points I, I want to talk about. Like I alluded to it, we have we have Chakotay. Uh, we find out that hologram Janeway's uh, memories are classified, and we get that little flash of Chakotay being the captain of the Protostar. I kind of like finding out that Chakotay ended up going back to Starfleet after his excursion into the Maquis, his return to the Elva Quadrant. Uh, what, what did you think? And what do you think about the possibilities of seeing more Chakotay? I don't know if it's just in kind of like memory, you know, records or what have you, I don't know if live-action chicotes in the cards, but um, what was your reaction to hearing Robert Beltran's voice once again, not just in this episode, but in, in um, the next one, too?
0: Well, it's always exciting now to see these legacy characters come back, even if it doesn't pay off, say, in a live-action show. But nonetheless, I thought it was a lot of fun, and I'm hoping, um, you know, I mean, this ship can hop around pretty good. We wound up in the Gamma Quadrant in this episode, so, uh, you know... I think we can kind of pop all over the place now with the Proto um, star. So, like, I think it could be really fun to see Chakotay. And that character was so often sidelined or just kind of treated very blandly on Voyager. So, like, in animation, we could maybe do some really exciting things and maybe give him a little bit more of that sort of swashbuckling quality we saw in, like, an episode like Basics, for example. Like, why not make this character really fun? Because I don't think you can bring him onto this show Have him perform the way he did in some of those underwritten Voyager episodes and appeal to kids. I think if you're going to bring Chakotay onto a kid's show, there's got to be a personality for kids to kind of pop for.
1: What's amazing, you go to the conventions and Robert Beltran is a fan favorite there. And I I think it just speaks to kind of the guy's charisma. Look, he's a good looking dude. He's very charismatic in person. I, I totally get it. But the thing is, when Chakotay was given good material, Beltran always popped. He always popped, but it only happened when he was given good material. And I think the rest of the time, like, the actor, he said it in interviews before. If he was just, like, saying I I Captain, or just reading techno babble, he didn't give a crap. And you can kind of see that with, like, his line deliveries. And I think he was just trying to send a message to the writers, but I, I don't know if it necessarily served him that much if the writers clearly saw that he was bored as well. Yeah,
0: so, I mean, I believe on the show, Jason Alexander is going to be a crew member of his, right?
1: I... Well, I, it could be. I I don't know that 100%, but I think there's yeah. like some sort of uh, press release out there or something. I don't know.
0: Okay, well, like, if that is the case, like, someone like a Jason Alexander, you know, bantering opposite, like, a Chakotay character could just be really fun on the show. So I think if you give him fun people to play off of, that could hopefully elevate Chakotay a bit. Because I think, like, a lot of people have this weird kind of post-Voyager view of Chakotay, just because... His final story is that weird love story with Seven. Like, let's give him a better, you know, epilogue to the, you know, story of Beltran's involvement with Star Trek than what Voyager left him with, and also being yeah. dead in the finale, which was weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was.
1: Um. Okay, so they did establish that uh, the protostar in that like a few moments of space travel. It could go, you know, 4,000 light years. And as you said, it got them into the Gamma Quadrant. So I'm curious about what that means moving forward. And here's what I'm a little confused about. I think the press material was saying that this series takes place in like the mid-2380s. But the hunt for the Protostar has been going on for 17 years, which would mean that it actually takes... That that hunt for the Protostar would have started before Voyager got back home. And before Chakotay would have returned to Starfleet as a captain and before there would have been a holographic Janeway to be projected there. So I, I I just wonder if maybe the press material is wrong and maybe this is closer to more of the Picard era, that that could be a possibility. We saw a bit of a glimpse of what Chakotay's uniform would look like. And I've just kind of resolved myself. It doesn't matter, you know, what the year is like every series is going to have its own distinct uniform we're seeing that with lower decks where we like we, we had voyager going on at the same time that they had made contact with earth and uh they they weren't going to change over to the first contact uniforms and then meanwhile in deep space nine we, we had the tng crew in their regular starship uniforms while the deep space nine people were on those more were in those more utilitarian sort of jumpsuit, so i i i can totally wrap my head around that but um that's just one thing that i i wanted to point out is like it's still unclear to me when exactly this series takes place i would have
0: to think it's shortly after the events of voyager right like i it can't be too many years down the road but i i don't think i have faith that um the timeline stuff makes sense i I don't think they would bungle
1: that I, I, I don't think it can be shortly after the return of Voyager, because if they've been hunting for the Protostar for 17 years, and then the Protostar mm. used to be captained by Chakotay and now has a holographic Janeway, I, I think it would have to take place at least 15 years after the return of Voyager.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes sense to me. And hopefully we get a better glimpse at Chakotay at some point, maybe a, uh, yeah. you know, earth, earthbound form. And we'll see if he's got like, I don't know, like the gray fox look or something. We can go, okay, cool. I get it.
1: More tattoos. Sure, <laughs> like the yeah. Q uh, version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Cam. Uh, why don't we jump over to first contact? Um, I, I I do like the. Do you notice like the episode titles? Like we'll we'll jump over to uh, uh time Amok. mock. We also had Kobayashi. Now we have first contact. They're they're playing off of like previous episode titles because of course the season premiere of Discovery was Kobayashi Maru. Um, I I don't know. This is just kind of funny to me. Um, Does anything stand out about their use of episode titles so far? Is it just more like, ah, inside jokes? Well, I appreciate that they're short.
0: That is something that's fun. Like, they um, kind of pop when you see the titles. They're easy to remember, unlike some of the more tortured, um, you know, grandiose ones we've seen in some of the other shows. Like, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry? That's the one I was thinking of, but there's a couple others I think it's your favorite one, though, isn't it? You love that. I tale. mean, it's it's hard not to love it because it's, it's so <laughs> insane. It's like the for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, this one, like, look, we're we're introduced to Daemon Nandi, so we we can understand that Frankie women can be Daemons or you know uh, captains of marauders uh, as of now. So we have we're in that post Rom slash Mugi era of reform on Frankenar and uh, Nandi is the mother figure to doll and so when she betrays him it's kind of this parallel between how the diviner betrayed gwyn as well so I, i'm curious about them exploring those parallels between the two characters uh moving forward so this is kind of interesting like uh we had kind of their first visit of, of aliens that really depend on crystals that hum since uh cv pockham <laughs> parabellum back in star trek discovery you know uh, so like i i, I thought okay I, i've been thinking about this like Another reason why I'm enjoying Prodigy so much is it's very unpretentious storytelling. It's very like, here's the goal, here are the challenges ahead, and it's very easy to follow along. This one didn't quite blow me away as the last one did, but I I really enjoyed just kind of uh, checking in and getting more information about what Doll's background was as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it presents a classic Star Trek mission in a very simple way. Like, again, it's a kid's story, but... It's not really any simpler than, I don't know, a classic episode of TOS where they beam down, you know, there's a certain vibrancy to that world and they explain basically the gimmick of the planet or the alien species they're going to be dealing with. That's what this show's doing, I think, really well. It's, you know, you were mentioning like space locusts. Um, There's been some like Discovery or Picard episodes where we're dealing with like an alien situation or a planet or whatever. And it gets like just kind of convoluted and you don't really have a good grasp on why anything matters that much. Here, I think this episode did a fantastic job of just setting up—you know, there's these these um, you know aliens who operate through sound. We they have these crystals they use, and you've got this Frankie stealing crystals. So we completely understand the stakes, why it matters, how it impacts a first contact mission, and for a kid, like they're not going to walk out confused. And I think the idea of a prime directive can be a little tough, a little cumbersome to explain to a kid. I thought an episode like this did a great job.
1: Yeah. In. I, I also think about kind of the questions that they're raising here. At least that holographic Janeway raised, in which like this is these uh, species first brush with alien life. You know, uh, from people from outside of their own planet. They they may not have even realized that there is life in other worlds. And so, what does this mean for them moving forward, where their first interaction is a, a malevolent interaction? Uh, the the cadets eventually kind of like fix things but um this is not good for an uh, evolving society right now and Janeway kind of uh, lays into the cadets which I, I appreciate and those are kind of the questions that I like that they're raising here if only for like kids can kind of understand kind of the basics of Star Trek lore uh, moving forward as well
0: but there's also the moral of, about first impressions about how to greet people about how to show people respect right off the bat because the show demonstrates what can happen if you don't and so, like, it's, I think, smart kids entertainment to couch it in sci-fi and, you know, aliens and all this sort of excitement adventure kind of stuff, but there's a pretty strong moral there in the episode, and that's something Star Trek has done really well right from almost day one.
1: Well, that's the other thing. Like, you talked about kind of smart kids entertainment, and they resolved what was going on here by putting the com badge on a crystal to beam it back over to the planet, and... Well, guess what? Like they had set that up earlier when they were playing with comm badges and transporters, so it's kind of it's a story building on it, whereas one of our complaints about you know it seems as if discovery kind of relies on brute forcing your way out of the situation rather than using their your brains and I think as a kids show, you're gonna have to rely on using your brains rather than brute force, which I really do appreciate,
0: yeah, and the way they set up the solution was a lot of fun, like I think if I were you know, an eight or nine-year-old kid and I'm watching Murph get beamed all over the ship and pizza being beamed around, like, that's delightful. And then to see it pay off as a solution to the problem, it's not like, well, as you said, it's not, you know, pretentious storytelling. It's a very, you know, set up payoff, but I think it's done really well. It doesn't feel, like, I didn't feel like I was being kind of talked down to when that was the re- you know, the solution to the problem at the end of the episode. I was like, oh, that's pretty clever, actually.
1: I Were were you amazed by just the, the size of the Ferengi Marauder? Because you can tell like it's a giant yeah. ship, but it seems as if Daemon Nandy is the only one running it?
0: I was a little confused about that because I was like, wait, this is animation, so they can't say they couldn't afford other crew members. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is uh, odd. But I, I did like kind of how hard-edged they made the Nandy character and that this could be someone who was a little bit of a villainous presence on the show. And when she turned on Dal, like, I thought that was a pretty tough moment. The show is interesting in that I think one of the big concerns when they announced, like, Prodigy was it's going to be, you know, Star Trek for babies or whatever you want to yeah. say. Whatever yeah. derogatory term for it. But, like, I don't know. In the previous episode, we had the weird scene of, like, the Diviner <laughs> giving birth to Gwyn. <laughs> yeah. Here we have, like, Nandy turning on Dal. Like, it has... Mature content, you know, woven in some definitely dark stuff, but with like a playfulness. And it doesn't like it doesn't linger on that sort of unpleasantness.
1: Yeah. I, when was the last time we saw a Ferengi Marauder cam? Like, was it like, like deep, or I guess it's like TNG season seven, that episode where uh, Picard thought he might have had a son, and that's when Damon Bach comes back for revenge? Is, is that. I, I, it's such a beautiful ship. I just don't know why they haven't been able to use that design in in such a long time. Like we're talking like thirty years.
0: Yeah, in live action, that's probably it. Did they work one
1: into like lower decks anywhere? Maybe I don't recall at this point. So I so there's it brings me back to the kind of a, a funny exchange on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I I know Joss Whedon. Uh, go go read that interview <laughs> that he just did. Like oof. <laughs> <laughs> Oof! Uh, I'm I'm not here to bolster uh, Joss Sweden by any degree, but I, I still really like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and there's so many other people involved in that show. But uh, Armin Shiverin, he was playing the principal of uh, Sunnydale High School, and uh, Giles, uh, w- who was uh, Buffy's uh, um, guardian there, uh, he he had this funny exchange with uh, Principal Schneider or Snyder, I should say, and he was like, uh, when the library was kind of being like invaded by these other officials and and giles said to armin shimmerman take your marauders elsewhere and i had to (laughs) i had to think oh that was like somebody in the writing uh staff that was just having fun with uh kind of his connection to uh the ferengi i my guess though is like jane s penson uh she wrote for firefly as well as uh buffy uh battlestar galactica I I think she was. Uh, she wrote like one Deep Space Nine episode. I think she's kind of the uh, the Star Trek fan that maybe squeezed that quote in there. That that's my guess there.
0: Oh, interesting. That is a fun little nod. Um, also, a fun little nod in this episode I appreciated was uh, Nandi posing as like someone with an <laughs> orphan with the phage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. That was hilarious. <laughs> that actually made me laugh out loud. And that's something like. Some of the live-action shows have tried to be funny and left kind of dead air, but, like, these animated ones... Lower Decks is obviously more of a comedy, so it works a lot of the time. But, like, moments in this episode and the you know, the previous episode actually had me laughing.
1: Well, remember the uh, Discovery Season 2 premiere? And, like, the big joke of the episode was, like, Linus sneezed. Mm-hmm. And you're just supposed to be laughing your butt off because, like, the, this lizard alien sneezed on somebody. And it's just like, uh Okay, like like potty humor whereas like yeah. <laughs> like like Prodigy which is for children into potty humor, it's not really uh relying on that, which is just interesting. No,
0: there was a couple little gags with Murph there about flatulence or whatever, but yeah, I mean there's f- clever stuff in there as well.
1: Yeah. Um want to jump over to Time Amok? Uh, we got our first, like, time travel episode, which was interesting. And I like, like, I honestly, I I thought it was originally just going to be kind of a repeat of cause and effect, and they actually found, I like the way that they're showcasing, like, the oscillating differences between like, timelines, and time moving slowly, time moving at normal, time moving, like, much faster. And, like, I think it was kind of a, a clever little hook that you got into that and look it's one of those kind of like ah shucks sort of messages at the end let's work together but i also think like it's just kind of cool and like they are slowly giving people more defined roles within the protostar and, like we have gwyn as the communications officer Dahl as the captain we have uh, uh, Jankum as the go-to engineer. And, you know, we, I, I guess, is it Rock's job now is kind of like the uh, the science guru after having all that time to uh, learn about all this stuff? That seems to be where it's
0: going because we had, you know, them trying to make her the security chief, which uh, she was not looking at too favorably. So I think at the end they were saying about growing into your role, and I would guess science officer.
1: So what will
0: Murph's job be moving forward, Camp? <laughs> Um, first officer. <laughs>
1: okay, okay. I don't know what to make of Murph. Like, there's, there's got to be something. Like, they'll, they'll have a, the, the Murph episode one of these days. But it's just like right now, Murph is just there. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why. Just yet. I suspect there will be a, a good function for Murph at some point. Um, what is Zero's position at this point? Well, I thought Zero would have been kind of the science officer person, right? But yeah. like, I, if if rock is kind of taking over that role, I don't know. Like, but Zero has like this mix of being like wise beyond their years, as well as being like a total like doofus and like out of like their own sort of uh, timeline, or or, you know, or like not not familiar with how humanoids interact. You know, it's like I I don't exactly know uh, Zero's place just yet.
0: No, I was. Trying to figure that out because when they alluded to um, Rock Talk becoming more of a you know science based character, I was suddenly going like, wait a second, like wh- where does this leave Zero? Because I just assumed that that's what that character was doing, but maybe we're gonna see Zero in a different type of role um, going forward, or maybe first officer, or
1: doctor. We still need a doctor, doctor, yeah. You know, I guess maybe. You know, maybe it's helpful because Medusin's not. Uh... I mean, gonna learn. They'll learn lots about humanoid biology, or I don't know. Because like, if you're a gaseous cloud, you know, it's kind of good to have a uh, a different perspective on things, I suppose.
0: Maybe morale officer.
1: There you go. Yeah, just like Nelex. I, I, <laughs> yes, that's perfect. There.
0: Maybe Murph will be like morale officer or something like that. Okay. Okay.
1: Um I, it's funny, I, I don't have nearly as much to say about time Amok as I had with the other ones. I just thought it was kind of a um a, a pretty solid adventure, like uh building up what makes the crew the crew. and uh, there's even kind of i I find it increasingly interesting how much they're making holographic Janeway kind of the emotional core of this, whereas she's not the real Janeway. And it's not as if she has emotions, but it just Mulgrew's performance just even voiceover is just kind of bleeding out so much and when you know Janeway finds out that these quote-unquote cadets actually stole the protostar you can see that she's hurt and disappointed by that and it's kind of I don't know I'm, I'm very impressed with how the writers are kind of like tackling having like kind of this legacy character and actually making this Kate Mulgrew as hologram Janeway kind of matter to the series moving forward
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that as well, and that I really appreciate, as you said, like how much of a character holographic Janeway is, but also like what Mulgrew's bringing to it. Like she's not just tackling it, being like, okay, I'll just repeat my Janeway, you know, act from seven seasons of Voyager. It feels like a new character, just one based on a model that we all know. And I think like when you hear that an iconic, you know, actor is coming back to a role, you kind of fear you could wind up with something like the you know, Shatner on the original animated series where <laughs> <laughs> the passion pouring out of that man with every recording just comes across all these decades later. So like you worry that it's just kind of like a, an actor just going, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll take the paycheck and just kind of do some classic Janeway lines. But it really feels like she's fully invested in this character
1: and the writers are meeting her and actually giving her great stuff to do. Uh, Shatner recording his lines was like Krusty the Clown recording the talking doll version of Krusty from that episode of Simpsons.
0: <laughs> it lacked the energy of Krusty True. the Clown. I True. wish.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so look, uh, Cam, overall these last three episodes, I- I- I'm digging it. We only have a couple more episodes left of Prodigy and then We're going to go for yet another mid-season break, which, okay. What the
0: hell? Like, what is this release strategy? We're going to talk more about Star Trek news and releases
1: um, coming up. But, like, just in terms of Prodigy, what are they doing? (laughs) I don't know. Like, I'm sure there's some sort of method to this madness. But, like, I, I mean, if you go with, like, four episodes, five episodes at a time, and then you're on, like, extendo hiatus, I just, like... Okay, because okay, so well, why don't we use this as a segue to talk about kind of this latest news? Is because what we do know is that uh, we'll get episodes of Prodigy through to February third, and then what Star Trek uh, the official like uh, folks are saying is that additional episodes coming, quote later in twenty twenty two. I don't know what sure. that means. Uh, we also have news with regards to a premiere date for Picard uh, March third, so it's coming up much faster than I thought it would be uh, that season two. We already know that they are filming season three as we speak. I can't, I'd be very surprised if there's a season four of Picard. I think like they just want to do a uh, a three episode or three season sort of run for the show. And it just makes sense with regards to streaming methods. And, and like Netflix shows typically only run three or four seasons because I think what they find though is like viewership and interest just kind of drops off steeply after that. So I don't know, that, that's interesting, but uh, w- what are your thoughts on Picard uh, coming in about, what, like, five weeks' time?
0: Um, I'm ready for Picard. I think we've had these, you know, trailers kicking around for a while now. It feels like we've almost waited too long yeah. with the marketing. Like, I feel like I understand the concept of this season, and I've just been sitting on it. Like, okay, well, I guess I'll watch it at some point. It feels like I probably should have started watching that show a while ago.
1: So, yeah, I'm ready for it. Cam, do you remember, like, Picard, like, we were doing the podcast as the pandemic was, like, on the rise, then the world shut down, and we did, I think, our last two or three Picard reviews, like, just as a pandemic was taking off, and you and I started doing remote uh, uh, podcasting versus, like, uh, doing doing it in my living room studio. So, it's been two years since we saw Picard. That's just wild to me.
0: I know, I know. And I, you were saying you doubt that there will be a season four. I just wonder if um, all of these uh, COVID protocols of shooting and everything, if Patrick Stewart's just like, oh, man, am I done with this show? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, I <laughs> no think, more, no more.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like, does he want to keep like this man's in his 80s does he want to do this for five seasons exactly. like probably not you know so I get exactly
0: that. it's like go and do other stuff he loves doing theater make the most of the things you love most yeah
1: okay so the other news we have is that uh discovery will be back february 10th and it is official we're coming back for a fifth season. Whether or not it will be its final season, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we won't know that for a, a long, long time. But, Cam, I, I, I'd I, honestly be shocked if this is kind of a, a, a seven-season sort of series. I think Alex Kurtzman may have said that he wants it to go seven seasons. Maybe I might be mixing up uh, interviews or something like that. But I don't know. Like, I'm... Is it sad that i'm I'm kind of already waiting for season four to just wrap up so we can look forward to season five at this point um it's sad, but it's also completely relatable
0: because <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same boat
1: yeah i just i like I like the season premiere i I thought that it had potential and it's just episode to episode i i just I feel as if these writers have never really watch television beyond 1999 and then somebody told them yeah here's a giant budget and you're allowed to swear and you're allowed to feature nudity if you want do whatever you want yeah and so it's just like this weird like i don't this show is unlike anything else that i've seen on television and i don't mean like that as a compliment it's it's just bizarre kind of the the choices and like it, it comes off more like a big budgeted CW teen drama more than anything else at this point. And I'm saying this as somebody who likes a lot of the characters, and it's really just the character stuff that's getting me through this, because the storytelling stuff is not.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of other, um, you know, geek property shows kicking around now with obviously the Star Wars stuff and the Marvel shows. And I've seen the majority of these things. And it's weird, you know, some are good, some are not, some are really bland. But it's like, very few feel as just kind of like all over the place as Discovery. In fact, most of them are very consistent, whether you really are into them or not. Like, they feel very consistent episode to episode. Whereas, like, Discovery is just, like, slingshotting all over the place like crazy. And that's something I wouldn't say about, you know, Prodigy so far, Lower Decks. Picard, maybe I, a little more so, but but not as, much, not as much.
1: I would say Picard is more consistent than Discovery. And that, you know, Discovery will have, like, moments... Uh, that I absolutely adore, that I think are great, followed by moments that just make me groan and just, like, uh, press my, my fingers against my temples and, and wonder, like, who decided on this? Whereas Picard, ultimately, we we're, we're, we don't think it worked, but at least it was more consistent episode to episode, despite the fact that we'd get, you know, just garbage, like, Stardust City rag, you know, thrown in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, and um, with the announcement... And they mentioned Discovery Season 5. Didn't they list it as 10 episodes?
1: Oh, if they did, I, I may have missed that. Uh, but if that's the case, then I think that's like one more clue to the limited amount of budget that they're willing to invest in a show. Especially now that Netflix is not paying them giant licensing fees for Discovery. And that it's all going to be on Paramount to cover the budget of the show. And I wonder if we'll see a a, a bit of a, not a a noticeable budget cut, but something like more bottle episodes, kind of like what we got uh, a couple weeks ago with the Frakes directed episode that I'm I'm blanking on the episode title right now.
0: Yeah. And I'm also just wondering, like, if this is Discovery season uh, five, you know, is the end of the road for the show, and we've got Picard season three, end of the road, potentially for that show. Do you think, going forward, they're going to look to replace those two? Because when I look at that schedule and see how swamped it is with Star Trek stuff, I'm like, oh my god. Oh my god, that's a lot of Star Trek. Do you think they're going to look to replace these shows? Or is it kind of like, phase out those two and we can just continue onwards with what the other shows we've got running?
1: Yeah, that, that, Well, look, we'll, we'll have Strange New Worlds as live action. Mm-hmm. I, I, it seems to me as if Section 31 is dead. Like, not officially dead. It's it certainly stalled the writers who were responsible for developing it, um, they're no longer writing for Star Trek anymore. They, they've gone elsewhere. It doesn't mean that they can't use the script that uh, those two writers uh, created. But, uh, you know, like uh, Shahzad Latif did an interview recently. He's like, yeah, uh, I, I wish them best of luck. Like, I, I don't really know what's going on with that show. And Michelle Yeoh is extremely busy. She would, I no doubt, love to return to that character, Giorgio, if she could i i don't know cam like i just i i'd be surprised if we get a section 31 coming up i think the more likely option is kind of a, a starfleet academy show you know which based on that discovery episode yeah i didn't particularly like the tone of it it just seemed like whiny kids um who can't get along but then by the end of the episode they learn that they have to get along <laughs> i i'm having way more fun at with a with prodigy being kind of the cadet centric series at this point
0: well also like Prodigy just takes its time and tells its stories. Whereas like Discovery, it always it always feels very like chaotic and hectic and a lot of yelling. So I don't know, Prodigy is a lot more fun if I'm going to watch like young people learning a lesson stories.
1: Yeah. Look, I, can't, I think the most obvious thing, and I, I hate to say it, I would love to see it, but it just might seem too obvious. So it's like a Seven of Nine spinoff yeah. after Star Trek Picard, Star Trek 7. Uh, and it's not generations, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, because when I look at that, List they've got coming up of all these shows airing and several overlapping in terms of their runs, where you're going to have like an episode of Discovery and an episode of like Picard the same week or something like that. Like, I go, wow, okay, interesting. Um, but like, if suddenly you start opening up and not having as many shows, like, I wonder if that's almost better. Like, when I look at a show, we're going to talk about the Book of Fett in a minute, but like, sometimes breaks are a good thing. Sometimes breaks build up anticipation so people are excited for the show to come back. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just doing like wall-to-wall Star Trek consistently, like I I just don't know if people care at a certain point. And right now people are, uh, you know, kind of uh, trapped a little more than usual because of the pandemic. They're consuming a lot of this content. But like if things are more open and people are living their outside lives a little more, like maybe they just don't have time for wall-to-wall content coming from Star Trek.
1: I go back to the 1990s, you had two episodes a week airing uh, for, what, I think like five seasons with Voyager and Deep Space Nine, or maybe only four seasons. So, I mean, the other thing is, I think at a certain point, people kind of got burnt out on Star Trek by the time you got to Enterprise. I I just, I think in this era of streaming, where the goal is to build your library content, and whether or not people are watching it week to week, that's uh, of secondary concern. I think that there is a market for this and I wonder if look, you can do a show where we're not so hot on like Picard or Discovery, but then you and I we really like watching Lord Dex and, and Prodigy. You and I are unique in that like as podcasters we feel obligated to be watching all of them. <laughs> so that's one thing right there uh that we have to consider. Uh, but look, uh we've said it before, we're really looking forward to Strange New Worlds uh yeah. joining The Fray, that has an official premiere date of May 5th. I think when we were talking about it a couple weeks ago, I think I speculated that that would have been more of a a June release, but I'm totally down for a May 5th premiere, a series premiere, and uh, it's official. We're getting a season two of Strange New Worlds as well, and my suspicion is that that will probably debut uh, fairly early in uh, 2023. We're not going to have like this extended wait like we got with, say, Picard, season one versus season two
0: i'm gonna be really interested to see how people respond to strange new worlds like discovery was so noisy out of the gate as was picard actually but i don't know that they grabbed people for the long term it doesn't feel like it in terms of like how much these shows are being buzzed about i would love to see like one of these shows just really grab people in a big way i think lower decks often deserves to be that show but it just doesn't seem to quite be the case yet so I will be interested to see if like Lower Decks has a better shot at that, but at the same time they're on Paramount Plus. I don't know how many people are really watching them anyway.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking of Lower Decks, uh, all that you know, Paramount is saying is that season three coming summer twenty twenty two, which is what we kind of assumed anyways. It typically uh, starts running in August. I wonder if it might start in July at this point. But honestly, after Lower Decks concludes, I, I guess we'll have Prodigy in the fall, because who knows when that'll be back, but well, some of that Prodigy's already getting a second season. Maybe season two will be running by the fall as well. Who knows? But then after that, I, I, I mean, we might have to wait until uh, 2023 to get kind of reloaded with the uh, Discovery... Picard Strange New Worlds burst of uh, uh, episodes as well
0: no that's true I I wonder if Prodigy season one will still be running into 2024 at this rate too (laughs) (laughs)
1: 2024 yeah
0: here's three more episodes we'll come back later see you guys
1: (laughs) is Star Trek Prodigy the Ren and Stimpy of the 2020s
0: we will be buying the blu-ray set long after blu-rays have all dissolved and no longer exist (laughs)
1: I'll bring up another (laughs) um, Simpsons joke, but you remember when they uh, were having like award shows for animated series uh, within an episode of the Simpsons? And I think it was for like Itchy and Scratchy. And then they also say uh, also nominated is Ren and Stimpy for their pilot episode. And then they flash to a screen that says pilot not yet finished. Yeah. (laughs) I thought it was such a great kind of like Hollywood joke that they got right there. Yeah,
0: I wonder, like, how does a show like Prodigy work with the Emmys? Because don't they generally not consider them until the season's over?
1: No, no, it's, uh, there is a period of time in which uh, shows are eligible. And so it, it, as long as you have any episodes within this eligibility period, you can um submit those particular episodes to voters. And they can decide if, you know, they'll, they'll throw votes that way. Even if, like, your premiere... Uh, starts before the eligibility period or and or your finale is after the eligibility period as long as there's some episodes within the eligibility period that then you're good to go
0: i see although i'm making assumptions that prodigy is going to get nominated for emmys as
1: well (laughs) best best drama yeah exactly animated live action doesn't doesn't matter yeah exactly so Kim, we got a letter uh, a couple weeks ago uh, after our Star Trek: First Contact rewatch. Um, it's a very thoughtful letter. I wonder if there's a couple points that you want to highlight that from a listener of the show.
0: So this letter is from Brett Stoes, who wrote in regard to our First Contact episode, and was saying how much he enjoyed the episode and. Uh, Made some connections between um, Star Trek and the Borg and uh, Doctor Who, which I'm sorry, Brett, was a little lost that I think both of us were not Doctor Who watchers. Um, I did pass the letter on to friend of the show, Scott Hardy, though, who does know Doctor Who and uh, appreciated a little more. But um, what he said is he'd like to see a Borg origin story sort of along the lines of what happened with the Cybermen on Doctor Who. He says... um, Somewhere on some planet, a person or group of people creates the first collective, presumably with some initially understandable and not unreasonable goals in mind. But once the implications of the collective and its sense of superiority and need to expand begin to take shape, seeing that forced transition of a free society to a drone collective could be a fascinating case study in how we build a new technology at our own risk. Though I did not watch the BSG follow-up Caprica, My sense is that perhaps there were similar themes at play in that show relating to the development of the Cylons. In any event, I always appreciate when your conversations stir ideas that linger, so thanks for the great discussion. Now, Tyler, you watched Caprica. Could
1: you maybe touch on that a little? Well, I watched the first 10 episodes of Caprica, and then it Uh went on like another mid-season hiatus, and I could not be bothered to return to it, especially after we found out that it's getting canceled after one season. So I, I I know what he's getting at though with regards to kind of the origins of the Cylons and um, Caprica is more of a, a family drama versus kind of a military action series that we got with uh, Battlestar. I think there's something to explore with the origins of the Borg. I just wonder if we're at Borg saturation points already after, you know, 30 years of them. It's... I. Uh, I think I floated a couple weeks ago, but it'd be interesting if we saw kind of the, I don't know, the the quote-unquote creator of this link that uh, a collective of individuals first get into, and this creator uh, looks remarkably like the Borg Queen. That could be your main character. I think it'd be a hard story to tell if you already have this kind of collective consciousness in which you have to be invested in individual characters. I think that is a very, very tough thing to depict, well in this tv formats and while i'm interested in it i wonder if it's best left to something like a, a a book form where you can really get into the thoughts of your characters versus tv it's a visual medium and if you have kind of and again i, I i'm not pretending I'm, I'm in brett's head or anything like that or how he envisions the show it's just that if you're in a television medium how, how much voiceover do you necessarily want to hear? Like it's more built on character to character conflict that uh, I would find more interesting. And actors would, I think they'd want to speak their lines to other actors. And that that's just how I kind of envision. I think there's potential here. I just don't know how I would necessarily pursue it in a way that's going to be gripping week to week.
0: I think it could be interesting if it was like a movie, like maybe a movie shot for CBS or I mean, Paramount Prime, I should say. Um, and make it more of a two-hour, small scale science gone wrong story, like with some mm-hmm. science fiction ideas that are really compelling. And we could understand what the origins of the Borg are without creating armies of Borg drones and all the big picture stuff. Like make it literally about the creation as to what went wrong. And normally I'm not a big fan of the kind of explainy backstory stuff we see so often in IP driven stuff nowadays. But, like, I do think there's a core of an idea there that could be really interesting and scary. Like, make it a little more of, like, a thriller or horror kind of story. So, I think there's something there. Like, I do think you could do it in an interesting way. But I would not go grandiose. I would not make the Prometheus of um, Borg stories. I would keep it much smaller scale.
1: By Prometheus, you're not referring to the uh, the starship featured in Voyager, but, uh, of course, the Ridley Scott movie, the, the return to the alien universe.
0: Exactly, yeah, where it's like the um, origins of the aliens from Alien are very convoluted, very murky, and really don't even add up after watching a very expensive, complex two-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, Cam, uh, why don't we kind of uh, clue in, listeners about what we're going to do next week but after we kind of do this wrap up we will have kind of a, a spoilery discussion about the latest episode of uh, the book of boba Fett, uh, chapter four the gathering storm um yeah i think that kind of the uh, the way to go yeah so tyler what are we doing next week Well, Cam, you kind of alluded to it just a few moments ago uh, with regards to the Prometheus, but we are going to do another one of our classic Star Trek episode reviews. This one is going back to Voyager. First time we've tackled Voyager in our classic episode reviews, not including, you know, the feature length slash two-parters. This one's going to be Message in a Bottle, a Doctor-centric episode, you know, very similar to how we have Holographic Janeway. So we can see how... This one particular doctor from Voyager handles things when uh, he's in charge of an abandoned ship as well.
0: Mm, I'm looking forward to revisiting this one. I've only seen it, I think, twice. So, that's exciting. And I have noticed, as of late, um, my Voyager original watch is, you know, a few years behind me now. I'm getting the inklings of going back and doing a Voyager revisit. Um, I'm still just creeping to the end of my TNG rewatch, but... I think Voyager is uh, going to be coming up somewhat soon.
1: Okay, I'm still making my way through my Deep Space Nine rewatch. And then after that, I'm going to do a full-out Enterprise rewatch. And then I've got Voyager queued up. So that's kind of the way I've got things ordered for me. So uh, I'll get there eventually. I, I think you'll probably be- beat me to the punch, though.
0: Yeah, like I did a, um Enterprise and DS9 not so long ago. Um, the only thing that keeps pulling me back is just my constant uh, interest in rewatching TOS. But um, Voyager, it's going to be jockeying between whether I decide to sneak in a uh, TOS rewatch or just jump into Voyager.
1: And when is your Discovery rewatch going to happen?
0: So, about that book of Boba Fett. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. This will be a, a, a spoilery review. Um, As we're calling it, the the, the book cam of Borton Fett, I think, is the the terrible pun that we're using. Uh, The Gathering Storm, this is chapter four. Cam, this show's terrible. Like, (laughs) like, if this was not related to Star Wars, let's say it's just some generic sci-fi show. You don't know any of these characters. You don't know this universe at all. Would you at all be interested in the main character? No. Um, and I was making this argument to my friend at work.
0: She's watching it as well. Um, she's been enjoying it, I think, more than um, we have. I was—I don't know. I was more up on the first two episodes than I have in these latter two. But um, she uh, is enjoying it. But I said, like, you know what bugs me about this show? I think I put my finger on it with this episode. Is that, like... It seems kind of clear to me they just want to make a show about Fennec Shand, but like Boba Fett is the name character, so they need to make a Boba Fett show because maybe they don't think Fennec Shand could just sell. But like when you actually watch this new episode, and I would have to go back and rewatch the previous ones, whenever there's like a situation that's, you know, a problem or something needs to be done, it's her character, it's the Ming-Na Wen
1: character who's taking action in these moments. Well, my tweet yesterday, uh, I said, um, it's the ming Wen-led *Fenix* series I'd much rather be watching right now. You know, the character possessing actual charisma and smarts. Like, Boba Fett seems like really dim to me. And I don't know if that's because he got caught in the Sarlacc pit and had the Jawas rip off his armor. And then after the Jawas ripped off his armor in this past episode, he's like, I got to go back to the Sarlacc pit to retrieve my armor. Like, dude, do you not remember the Jawas took it off of you? And to me, it's the problem with the—it's a problem I have with all shows. And what you make characters do dumb things just to further plot points. And what they're trying to do here is have him go back and have a cool moment where he destroys the Sarlacc pit and makes the pitch to Fennec, like, hey, you stick with me, we'll make a good team. So you have Boba being an absolute idiot, because it's very clear it, the Jawas took his armor. That, that's how he survived getting out of the Sarlacc pit, through all that acid. You know, and so I'm just like, oh, character has to be dumb to make your plot point happen. I hate that writing. And it, this is why the show's been so frustrating. I Look, I, I was kind of like back and forth on the first season of Mandalorian, and by the end of season one I'm like, okay, the show has got me. I really haven't been back and forth on Boba Fett, I, I've, I've kind of been like, this show's just, like, if you have, like, a very, very dull main character, it's very hard for me to be invested. Look, I, I know we're giving, like, Discovery a hard time, but Sonequa Martin-Green's portrayal of Burnham, like, like Burnham's a smart person. She does wild things. She has, like, uh, is possessed by an actress with, with tons of charisma. We are not getting that right now from Boba Fett.
0: The part where he was flying his ship into the Sarlacc, I had a moment of, like, did I just, like, black out for a second? Like, (laughs) why am I watching a ship flying into the Sarlacc pit? Like, what happened? Doesn't he Um, have missiles he can shoot? Yeah, and then, of course, Fennec Shen saves the day by dropping that, uh, you know, that awesome bomb from uh, Attack of the Clones. But, like, I'm like, okay, sure. And a moment that, like... I felt should mean something was where he shot down all of the swoop bike dudes, you know, who'd uh, killed the Tuscan Raiders. I'm like, okay, this is a moment where we should be getting like a glimpse into kind of the darkness of this character. And it should mean something like it could, should carry some weight. It carried nothing whatsoever. I was like, okay, sure. I did, I did like the shot though, just the shot of his ship in the far off distance uh, coming up behind them. I thought that was a cool shot.
1: I'd much rather be watching like a Boba Fett prequel, you know, like something that takes place 10 years after Attack of the Clones, you know, like that would be, I guess the character still has an edge. But is Disney really going to be willing to green light a show centered on like a total anti-hero, like somebody who hasn't had his edges softened and is on a redemption arc like we're watching right now, but somebody who's willing to, I think I said it a couple of weeks ago or maybe just last week, like shoot Greedo first in the belly.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, also, Tyler, if I ever become a crime lord, I'm going to recruit
1: some muscle before I announce (laughs) that I'm a crime lord. (laughs) Well, I I like how his pitch to all the other crime lords is just like, look, I'm going to carry all the burden on me. I'm going to make everything happen and I'm going to share all the wealth with you guys. So just FYI. And everyone's like, sure, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> it's like This Boba's an idiot. <laughs> like...
0: I just don't think in this era of Disney Star Wars, they can write a Boba Fett. Although, you know, I just said that. If you show me The Mandalorian in like season one of the show before they kind of had more of the bonding between him and Grogu, that's pretty close to Boba Fett. That's actually the Boba Fett show I would watch. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, somebody who did not agree with me though on Twitter was a uh, uh, frequent guest, Dale DeWriter. Uh He said they gave me more Chrysantin. That's the uh, the bad Wookie guy, the bounty hunter. Uh, they gave me more mm, Chrysantin yeah. and bantha bonding. I'm all in. So uh, Dale Dwyer is enjoying this series. I just, I it's 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 not working for me. I'm sorry, people. I, if you're if you're liking it, that that's fine. It's it's just not my kind of thing. I actually had a
0: coworker today say the show finally got good because of the, you know, Wookiee character. I'm like, I mean, simple pleasures, right? And there's shows that you and I get simple pleasures out of. I just hope for a little more from the book effects. I thought the setup at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2 was so awesome. But, yeah, it's just a weird show. Like, this one did more, I guess, to move the plot in terms of what's going on in the modern day for this character. But it's just so weirdly flat and i don't know like i've seen a lot of people much more excited about this episode but to me it felt kind of slow and not particularly engaging and i really found myself really walking away from the from the episode (laughs) the one thing i really loved was the (laughs) reveal of the rat catcher droid (laughs) which i just thought was really funny of this like little droid like trotting down the hallway (laughs) with like a fly swatter i'm like that's pretty good (laughs) that's pretty good
1: I I when we're watching them sneak into the palace through the sewage tunnel, <laughs> I turned yeah. to my girlfriend. I was just like, just think about all the waste. Uh, Boba Fett or not Boba Fett that uh, Jabba the Hut sent down there personally. And, like you're walking through that like um that, that not a pretty sight right there.
0: Yeah. Um. I did like the gag though of the um chef droid who like whips its arms around like uh, Grievous, but they undercut that by just having Shand. You know, sever its head. I thought that was a little fun moment because um, it kind of played with your expectations. Also, just cool to see EV ninety nine hanging out down in the kitchen. Apparently, I guess got downgraded from torture droid.
1: Okay, who's EV ninety
0: nine? In Return of the Jedi, when they go to the uh, torture room, EV ninety nine is working with eighty eight. 8 is apparently like. A consultant to Fett now who gets to hang out with him next to his throne, whereas EV 99 gets to chop onions or something.
1: Okay. Okay. See, I'm coming at it as like a casual Star Wars fan. I I have seen all the movies. I I like Mandalorian. You know, so just as a, I, I would say a neutral viewer... This, like, I'm not getting off on, like, the kind of the shout-outs to uh, the universe stuff. And, look, I, I totally understand, like, if some non-Star Trek fan were to watch, you know, an episode of Lower Decks, eh, they, they would not be nearly as delighted by the Easter eggs as I am. So I, I totally get that, but um, I don't know. Kim, do you think the show actually has potential to come back around in the next three episodes, or... Is this just kind of par for the course? Like, this is what we should expect uh, all the way through to Episode 7 when the season concludes. I mean, I'd be
0: shocked if it ended with, like, fireworks. Although they are teasing, like, a Mandalorian appearance, I think. I think. In the near future. So, it's kind of sad when, like, Boba Fett's like, Mandalorian, please come and save our show. (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) the injection of energy? Is, like, introducing a character we've just spent two seasons with? That should not be, like, your um, get-out-of-jail-free card.
1: Do you think the show gets a second season, or do you think this is more of, like, a, a one-and-done miniseries?
0: That is a really good question, because my thought process while watching the show was, this feels like a one-season show, but is Boba Fett going to, like, stay as a crime lord, and we're going to have the ongoing adventures? Like, are we going to have, like, the Godfather trilogy wedged into, like, an ongoing Star Wars Boba Fett show.
1: I have zero interest staying on Tatooine any longer. Like this is the most well-explored planet in all of Star Wars lore. I don't need it. Like and it's a pretty boring planet. It, it, like it's just desert landscapes and um, like I guess Moss Eisley and Moss Espa are you know kind of like funky little hangout spots. But I, otherwise, I'm just like eh. Let, let's go somewhere else. I mean. It feels like they're just like
0: strip mining every single recognizable aspect of Maz Eisley and Maz Espa we've seen in Star Wars and Return and then the prequels. So it's kind of like at a certain point you run out of novelty factor. Like they're throwing in the odd character here or there now that we haven't seen brought back from those movies. Like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting to see that. But at a certain point, they're not going to have anything. I guess we haven't had a pod race yet, so there's that. But I would imagine, you know. We have to move I'm sorry, on. I'm sorry, I can't wait for
1: yeah. Boba Fett's delivery of, now that's pod racing!
0: <laughs> Wizard! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it feels like there's just very few things to really explore at a certain point. So, like, maybe Boba Fett could continue on and maybe we could go to, like, I don't know, Cloud City or something like that. But in terms of a show set on Tatooine to continue for multiple seasons, it seems like that would get real
1: old. Unless it's, like, Fennec Shand, like as your lead or something like i, I don't know like i like I, I think a lot can be done if you have a lead character who's charismatic and interesting and has you know a couple uh brain cells to rub together
0: look at the scene where they're like getting baba Fett ship back i don't know if they're you see i haven't been referring to it by name because it was called slave one right yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think they ever called it that in the films, but that's what it was known as to all the toys and all the you know um, encyclopedias and all that stuff. I I know that Disney has been distancing itself from that, so I don't know if it's going to be called that on the show at this point. But um, there's that point where Boba Fett's in the like cockpit, just like slamming the ship into the walls. <laughs> and Shand is basically doing all of the awesome stuff. That is the show in a nutshell. Shand does awesome stuff while Boba Fett slams into walls.
1: <laughs> is this show just designed to make us like think like Boba Fett doesn't need a series anymore and that Shand should get a spinoff? Is it, I, that might just be the case here.
0: Well it would be smart of Disney to try to convince viewers to leave the old stuff behind so that they can focus on the stuff Disney has actually created for themselves. Cause like when you go to uh, star Wars, you know, land in Disneyland, which I haven't been to yet. Um, I was going to go to, you know, before the pandemic hit and then that was canceled, but like they've modeled galaxy's edge on like the newer stuff, the stuff that they created for their new trilogy, the sequel trilogy. So, like, I would have to imagine going forward, Disney wants to utilize all the things they've created versus the Lucas-built stuff. So, maybe, maybe the idea is build up a character like Shand and eventually we just move her away, she has her own show, and Boba Fett's off in the distance, I don't know.
1: Yeah. What's your sense? I I don't know, I I haven't really been following the, the Reddit boards, the social media, and you may not have either, but with regards to... Hardcore Star Wars fans, do you have an idea about how they're responding to this series? I think from what I've come across,
0: it's been fairly polarizing. Um, I think people are really enjoying all the iconography. The last episode, I don't think went over well. I think that <laughs> teen gang really grated on people. <laughs> um, I think it generally seems when you look at rankings and what have you, people have been the most enthusiastic about Episode Two. And then this last one is in second place. But overall, it seems like the response to it has not been what the Mandalorian was getting.
1: My takeaway, though, we are done with, like, the flashbacks, right? I would have to imagine so. Okay. I, I heard somebody on another podcast call them uh baktas, which uh, I thought was pretty <laughs> pretty hilarious. Because, so, of course, he's always in the bakta tank uh, when he's having these flashbacks. So. Um, yeah there you go that's my favorite part is that this delivered the, the phrase flashback to us
0: weird show weird show hopefully the uh 17 other star wars shows they've <laughs> announced um are a little more inspired than this one Fingers but pro. we can only wait and see yeah we can only wait and see okay so i think on that note our assignment is complete if you enjoyed listening to this podcast we want to hear from you jump on over to the facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod We will be, as we said, tackling Message in a Bottle next week, the Voyager episode. And you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V in
1: Vehicle Replicator, Smith. And before I deliver my wonderful Twitter handle, I just want to beg all of you people, just go give us five stars on whatever podcatcher you're listening to. The show's been, like, free for, what, camp six or seven years now? Um it's just this helps with the algorithm just uh do us that one favor and we'll absolutely appreciate it uh and that said uh i am at reportin that is r-e-p-o-r-t-o-n n N, as in nandy is a crystal thief
0: (laughs) okay so until next time the arena is closed Transfer complete.